And the thing I always tell people to remember how you can see the emphasis that we're not going to pay for higher education, we're not going to fund it, is that the guaranteed student loan program was modeled off of the federal mortgage program. And the guarantee was that bankers would be repaid. Not that you would get into college, not that you would get a loan, not that financial aid officers would receive the loans to give out to students. No, that the bankers were going to be repaid. We've we've seen a bunch of debt cancellation happen and we've changed the narrative that student debt is not an appropriate or fair way to finance higher education. And as we cancel debt, it changes expectations for what is possible. Welcome to AAUP Presents, a podcast by the American Association of University Professors. I'm the host, Mariah Quinn, AAUP's digital organizer. Today, we're going to discuss the past, present, and future of student debt, which now stands at more than $1.7 trillion in the United States in federal and privately held debt. This happens at a delicate moment when the promise of debt relief is now in the hands of the courts. My guests today are Elizabeth Tandy Shermer, an associate professor of history at Loyola University, Chicago, and the author of Indentured Students, How Government Guaranteed Loans Left Generations Drowning in College Debt and Charlie Eaton, an associate professor of sociology at the University of California, Merced, where he co-founded the Higher Education, Race, and Economy Lab. He is the author of Bankers in the Ivory Tower, The Troubling Rise of Financiers in U.S. Higher Education. Where do we stand right now in regards to the student debt situation in the U.S.? Uh, Well, we've got $1.7 trillion in outstanding debt. The president has announced an executive action to cancel several hundred billion dollars of that debt and has also announced some other uh, policies to change how students or borrowers have to repay their loans. Um, But they've been blocked by the courts. Um, And the status quo is uh, a situation in which we've actually seen new student loan borrowing decline over the last 10 years. It hit a peak around 2012 of $125 billion uh, a year, and it's actually declined to about $84 billion a year. But the strange thing is, or the surprising things for some folks, is that the amount of total debt that borrowers owe has continued to rise sharply over that period of time. And the reason is, that borrowers are increasingly unable to, to make payments, to cover payments on the debts that have been imposed on them. Um, and that's particularly been true for black borrowers. Uh, 66% of black borrowers we've shown in our research um, owe more than they originally borrowed 12 years after they started school. That happens because if you can't make payments, interest is added to your overall student loan balance. Um, And so that's why some folks have called student loans a debt trap, predatory, um, or to use Ellie's uh, fantastic term, uh, in a system of indenturing students. So that's a bit of the macro picture of where we stand today. We are now increasingly ruled in this country by the courts and particularly what judges want to do. 
But we also have stalled in Congress still um, new legislation that might make it possible to discharge student debt in bankruptcy. It is one of the few debts that cannot be discharged, and there is no movement on that. There is continued pressure on that. So again, we're having also the story of how we get indentured students is Congress in action. Um, and then also, I think it's also important to take a look at the state level because so much of this comes down to what um, individual states are doing. We have some really interesting experiments. We have more than 20 states that are experimenting with some form of free community colleges, different versions of that. So that's about future bars. Um, and then also in the case of future bars, we have two interesting experiments coming in New Mexico, as well as the state of New York in terms of actually free four-year college education. In the case of New Mexico, it is blanket. In the case of New York, it's income tied. So we have some really interesting things because I agree with Charlie. I'm right there with you about the current concerns about those who are holding debt now, but we also have got to be thinking about what's going to be happening in the future as well. Are there any good reasons for the decline? You know, you said in the total amount of debt being taken out each year, are there some, is it some of the good structural things that Ellie was just talking about or are there, what are the reasons behind that? Yeah, a great question. So one of the things that I show in my book is that there's been a very large divergence in who borrows and at which schools people borrow. Um, and so I talk about there being three tiers. It's not quite as simple as there being three tiers of, of colleges where students borrow. But, uh, but for simplicity's sake, I'll say this. At the top, um, what I call the top uh, tier, um, students increasingly leave school debt-free. And that's because our most selective private colleges disproportionately enroll economically advantaged students who can pay uh, cover tuition, uh, room and board without loans. And they have very large endowments that they can use uh, to subsidize college. So the big four of Stanford, Princeton, Harvard, and Yale have all essentially gone debt-free in their undergraduate student um, student aid packages. They, they call their programs debt-free, and in practice, around uh, only around 7% of undergrads at those schools borrow at all today. Um, and when they do, it, it tends to be not as much as elsewhere. Then at the bottom, you have for-profit colleges where enrollments have declined substantially. So part of this decline in borrowing is that fewer students are in for-profit colleges that had the most predatory um, lending and imposition of debts upon students. So there's a change in where students are going and how much debt they take on in association with that. And then in the middle, you also have rising debt as uh, schools were squeezed between reductions in Pell Grants over time, reductions in state funding over time, and they turned to student debt for tuition. They did not tend to increase tuition as much as private institutions uh, let alone for-profits, but they did increase student loan borrowing. And as Ellie said, there is increasingly a movement to offer debt-free pathways, even in our mass access public institutions. So part of the problem with these three tiers where the only, I call the, the top, the last bastion of debt-free education, the problem with it being the last bastion of debt-free education is that they don't actually really enroll any students. Um, if you only enroll... <laughs> 10 students, it's really affordable to offer them a debt-free education. It doesn't cost that much, providing that you've got a $50 billion endowment like Harvard. 
if you enroll more Pell Grant recipients than the entire Ivy League combined, as UC Berkeley does, it's a more costly proposition um, to provide students with a debt-free path. That said, UC Berkeley and the whole University of California system, as well as our community college and CSU system, have made a commitment to become debt-free by the end of this decade that's supported by our governor and the presidents of each of those uh, segments of our public higher education system. And they've actually made progress towards reducing um, the share of students who borrow. But that progress has been been unequal with the the lower you go in the, the hierarchy of the higher education system, the least progress we're making towards eliminating borrowing. Something, a question I have for Charlie is how much are those parents borrowing? Because I think that that's actually a really tricky thing with the financial aid question that I think we need to center as well, especially since those plus loans don't have the same limits that undergraduate federal loans have. And the other thing I do actually want to take a moment and say is that I think just to flag the importance of the work that Charlie and other researchers have done to show this, but also to put the emphasis on the questions of race and gender in terms of who borrows and who struggles to pay off, because it has been a sea change when the Biden administration's first town hall and the president made some noise about, well, about cancellation depends on if you um, went to Harvard or Yale. And that is vastly different from the announcement of the limited cancellation that we got this summer when there was public acknowledgement about the racial and gender inequities built into student debt. Yeah. And, you know, we've got to give huge credit to the NAACP and its its president, Derek Johnson, who's been the most uh, prominent advocate on this and most effective advocate on this. Yeah. On the question of parent plus loans, a great question. Sometimes I don't give it its due because sometimes it adds complexity to this story. And, And so if we're trying to tell a story, it gets a little tricky if we try to deal with all the ins and outs, but it's an important one. And it's a little bit of a black box. I would say we know the least about parent borrowing and we know the least about grad borrowing, which grad borrowing also uses these types of loans that are particularly pernicious because they, uh, they have no limit on how much a school can, um, use them in financial aid packages. You can ask a student to borrow $100,000 a year with grad plus loans. And so we have limited knowledge. Some of the best studies on the parent plus borrowing um, is Kate Zaloom's book, Indebted. Highly recommend it to folks. But we don't know much and we need to do more. I would say one thing I can say based, based on what we do know is that the decline in overall borrowing that I mentioned includes that is inclusive to parent plus loans and to grad plus loans. So the decline from over 125 billion to, to around 84 billion, that includes a decline in parent plus borrowing and grad plus borrowing, but grad plus dollars of borrowing may has made up an increasing share of the outstanding debt. Um, And so uh, we, we are very worried in our lab about predatory graduate programs that use huge amounts of grad plus debt. We have incentives now for schools to offer um, terminal master's degree programs that might not offer the same income boost, the same prestige, the same status as a Harvard law degree, and they can use those same loan programs. And one of the things we're particularly studying is the expansion of online degree programs that can use that in which 
those degree programs, there's an increasing amount of evidence that they actually have much worse educational support for students, but equivalent amounts of borrowing and very, very poor outcomes for increased income. So we're especially worried about a system that asks students to take on these huge amounts of debt for online degree programs. And effectively, the Department of Education in the U.S. government says, no, this is an okay amount of debt for you to take on when there's really been no due diligence to figure out if, if that amount of debt should be should be taken on. So there's a, a need for a lot more research on both of those. And, and we are in the initial stages of that at our lab. Can you talk a bit more about these online programs and the privatization of public higher education? I have a plug for a paper from our, our lab, which is a working paper we released with the UC Berkeley um, Center for Studies in Higher Education. Lead author is my colleague, Laura Hamilton, who co-founded our Higher Education Race in the Economy Lab. And the title of that paper is The Private Side of Public Universities, Third-Party Providers and Platform Capitalism. And it analyzes the contracts that public universities have with for-profit subcontractors to deliver their online degree programs. And the jargon for those subcontractors are online program managers. These programs should be a huge concern for AAUP members and and faculty because it's a a technique via which uh, public universities have shifted responsibility for who does the recruiting for these programs and who even does the instruction for these programs. And one of the things I like to point out is that this is kind of a backdoor for for for-profits that were behind the the predatory for-profit college student debt debacles of the early 2010s to get back into the system. So in a lot of cases, these online program manager contractors are sometimes the exact same company and are often owned by the same investors who led predatory for-profit colleges that have since collapsed because of uh, the crackdown on their illicit practices by the Department of Education. Those essentially the online programs at public and nonprofit institutions uh, that rely on those contractors today enroll more undergraduate students than the entire for-profit college sector did at its peak in 2011. So that it is the next looming for-profit college debacle if we can't help them get ahead of this and the problems with the the rise of these online program managers, we're going to have another comparable debacle in which students pay the price um, at these online programs. And I think that that's such a terrifying parallel to when the Obama administration tied with the Budget Reconciliation Act that enacted Obamacare. It was also the end of the Guaranteed Student Loan Program, but who serviced the debt was those banks that made a fortune off of the original guaranteed student loan program. And those are the ones who have done a horrific job, a terrible job of actually servicing this debt, which has continued to leave students struggling to pay it, which is a part of the piece about why it's been so hard and a really important factor about just the utter failure until recently. And I would say the Biden administration's Department of Ed, just as Charlie just said, has done some really remarkable things to make the PSLF program actually work, but they left it in charge of those banks that had made a fortune off of predatory student loans. 
And let's kind of now circle back to kind of the roots of the problem. Ellie, you read about the post-war expansion of access to education, and you say it did not transform college finances or make higher education genuinely equitable, affordable, or accessible. Can you walk us through what happened after World War II with the GI Bill, the creation of the Guaranteed Student Loan Program, and how that funding model was created, helping lead to this enormous debt and funding issues that we have today? Okay. Well, it did take me like 300 pages to explain that in a book. So just as a warning, so I'll try and do the quick and dirty version of it. Um, And and actually the most important thing is I actually kind of root it in the original federal experiments with tuition assistance. And that's actually in the 1930s with the Roosevelt administration. And the reason that was so important was that the New Dealers, they did not want to or were able to politically to invest in higher education to make um, tuition um, affordable or to release um, a a university's reliance on it. And instead, they chose a work-study program, which kept with the American tradition of you will need to pay for your higher education, which kept it from being universal. And that basic idea that you need to pay for higher education is something that actually was replicated with the GI Bill. The idea was that you had already worked off or you had already worked towards the money for your degree. And I will warn people who read it, I have had several people accuse me of torpedoing one of the most beloved pieces of legislation in American history, the GI Bill, to show actually how it didn't really make higher education as accessible as most textbooks, would you agree? Yes, 2.2 million veterans used it out of 11 million. And more importantly, a lot of them had to drop out because they never got those quote unquote subsistence checks, which were never enough, especially in post-war period of inflation to help them afford to stay in college, even though the federal government was paying for their tuition. But that whole emphasis on that you will need to pay and figure out how to finance your higher education was continued with another famous piece of legislation, the National Defense Education Act, with the first undergraduate loan program. But it did not have the money to invest broadly in campuses, only on specific departments for national defense. But it showed an eagerness and an excitement for a loan program, which even then was not enough to cover the full cost of tuition. And it wasn't keeping up with the cost tuition. As John F. Kennedy said in 1962 about continued congressional enthusiasm to keep renewing the original National Defense Education Act, that at a moment in time when the majority of Americans made less than $6,000, the average cost of going to college was $7,000. And he asked, how can we expect families to borrow $4,000 for each child at a moment um, when families were larger when they were today. And it just highlights the inaffordability of higher education has always been to the more the majority of Americans, let alone the question of accessibility. Yet lawmakers in the Great Society still double down on tuition assistance. And that's it seems like it's buried in the middle of the bill, that fourth act on tuition assistance, which includes a revival of work study. It includes campus grants that financial aid officers are in charge of. And then it comes to the question about enforcing actual equitable access to and equitable distribution of that for women and students of color. And then the big guaranteed student loan program. And the thing I always tell people to remember how you can see the emphasis that we're not going to pay for higher education, we're not going to fund it, is that the guaranteed student loan program was modeled off of the federal 
mortgage program. And the guarantee was that bankers would be repaid. Not that you would get into college, not that you would get a loan, not that financial aid officers would receive the loans to give out to students. No, that the bankers were going to be repaid. We're going to double down on student loans, which by definition are the worst kind of financial product because I'm going to give you a loan for something I can't repossess and I can't sell to someone else. And your only collateral really to getting this loan is acceptance by a college or university that needs your tuition. Charlie, you write a lot about how activism has influenced the debate and led to recent hope around debt cancellation. Uh, where do we start to see the rise of student activism and uh, around access and funding issues that has continued through the present? You know, there is an explosion of activism in the student movement around access and affordability in the 1960s in conjunction with the civil rights movement and the black power movement. One thing that folks have pointed out that there is actually a tight correlation between when schools expand both affirmative action and in the state of New York, in an interesting case, um, in the city university of New York system, they establish essentially guaranteed access that radically expands enrollment. It's when enrollment is radically expanded in response to those movements and in conjunction with the Great Society in uh, the 1960s and 1970s, that you start to get the introduction of tuition and the introduction of of higher costs to attend college. So when college was a much whiter um, and a much more middle-class proposition, tuition was actually much lower. And, and part of the shift in access is around activism. I would put the sort of high-water mark of affordability at at the coattails of that 1960s and 1970s movements in the late 1970s, where you get Pell Grants reach both a generosity in the amount of aid that they provide relative to tuition and in the percent of students who are covered because Pell Grants at that point were available not just to low-income students, but to middle income and even upper middle income students. And so <clears throat> end of the 70s, you, you've got essentially as much progress as you're going to make in the share of students going to college and much more generous financial aid. And only one in eight students are borrowing at all um, to be undergrads. Then in 1981, Reagan, with support of conservative acts in Congress, and the full democratic leadership goes along with it, they eviscerate Pell Grants. And there's this sort of 10-year period between 81 and 92, in which I call it a sort of slow motion crisis, in which the colleges are squeezed because Pell Grant funding has been eviscerated, but public institutions haven't really made the turn to, to federal student loans, and the guaranteed loan programs are still means tested. So a lot of middle-income students actually can't use the the guaranteed loans that, that Ellie's talked about until 1992. And then in 1992, through some somewhat complex negotiations between Democrats and Republicans and President Bush between 92 and really 95, that's when you get a massive expansion of the federal student loan programs, including the guaranteed loan programs, where they basically give half or more 60% of all expanded loans to the banks through the, the guarantee that Ali explained really well and about 40% that the federal government starts making directly to students. And then the, the reaction to that expansion of student loans 
and the, today's kind of last 15 years, maybe wave of activism and social movement against student debt really is kickstarted by the 2008 financial crisis and the Occupy Wall Street movement in its aftermath um, in 2011. And so a number of the organizations that have led um, the campaigns and initiated the campaigns to cancel student debt come out of that moment. You've got the, the debt collective, which, which certainly pushed for debt cancellation earlier and more uh, unequivocally than anyone else. You also get the creation of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau at that moment. And some of the leaders of important organizations like the Student Borrower Protection Center, the Harvard Project on Predatory Student Lending, they have, were involved in the creation of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau with support from academic law, including a very well-known academic lawyer named Elizabeth Warren, a former Harvard law professor. And then the Black Lives Matter movement, importantly, intervenes in and shapes the the attention to racial inequality and student debt, um, with also some great researchers um, doing really important work on that. And that kind of gives us the mix of groups including some unions that start to work with them, particularly education unions that pushed successfully pushed the administration to announce the, the executive order or the executive actions to cancel student debt that are, are currently being still being haggled over. So Ellie, you talked a little bit about how the system was created to pay back the banks. And you also write that the tuition free model common in many parts of the world was considered un-American. And we've talked a little bit about how we're, trying to expand access to debt-free education in the state university systems. But can you talk about the interplay of political dynamics and corporate influence in the present keeps the system that we have now, which is obviously not beneficial to students or faculty? I think one of the foundational things about when you saw this the Guaranteed Student Loan Program create a student loan industry, which is actually, there's so many different aspects of it. It has this incredible power, and especially with the intersection between it as well as for-profit colleges and also people involved in the education department, is that you have a lot of power in Congress to keep doubling down. And it is actually a process since the 1970s that has made it almost impossible to discharge student debt in bankruptcy. Another key aspect of that is something I mentioned earlier about when in the bitter fights in the early years of the Obama administration, so before the 2010 midterm elections, the focus of the nation was largely on Obamacare, but there was a real effort to go to nothing but direct lending. And it was, it was absolutely the power of the lenders of that entire industry, but also the concerns of some universities that had never actually worked with direct lending because the original direct lending program was really small in terms of actually wrapping their heads around just that financial aid coming from the federal government. And that just sort of shows you the power that is really entrenched in there as well. There was also, we have recordings of, or we have records of this that the opposition to the Biden administration's initial uh, proposal in the Build Back Better was two years of community college. It's a really interesting way of doing it. It was actually in some ways uh, kind of modeled off of what the Obamacare legislation was doing about trying to encourage state states to set up exchanges and things like that. It didn't go anywhere, but there was opposition from for-profit 
from nonprofit, private, as well as lenders into that experiment. Because if you think about it, that just that two years of community college, that can cut the price of higher education in half. And another thing that you've touched on as well is the discriminatory element in terms of how higher education has been expanded and how it's been funded. You've touched on a little bit about it, but can you talk more about racial and gender inequality as it relates to access and funding historically? And if you want to bring it to the present, that's great. Looking at the original work study program, it was led by a man, one of our most radical New Dealers, Aubrey Williams, a Southerner, a Southern socialist. He actually voted for the socialist candidate in 1932, not FDR. And he made a pointed effort to extend work study to African-Americans, recognizing African-American youth as the most affected by the Great Depression. And that's actually one of a part of the political fire that ended up having work study canceled. And it literally was canceled. It's an actual thing that happened with the budget going into it. What's sad is in subsequent years, kind of trying to hide this question of what we would now call access or equal opportunity in a very colorblind language. In the case of the Higher Education Act, having that third title for developing institutions hid, hid that this was money that was supposed to be going to what we now called historically black college and universities, HBCUs, with the recognition that even though the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed, even though it was passed, that they could not rely on financial aid and admissions officers on campuses to actually do that work. And actually the work of not just desegregation, but integration was really left up to fighting it out in the courts, which is a slow process. And there was just this implicit way that it was done. Similarly with the original Pell Grants, the whole idea was it was an implicit way of trying to help low-income students. The assumption being this is really going to students of color. It's one of the reasons that it was fought and also shocked a lot of people to realize how many low-income Americans in the 70s were actually white as well. It's a symptom of that stagflation of that 70s economy, that, that, that challenge that we've seen. The National Defense Education Act is a really great example about well, the barriers to women, because it's going towards those that the money for higher education, um, tuition assistance, as well as individual departments are focused on things that are supposed to be for defense, science, math, engineering, foreign languages, with the exception of foreign languages. These, the, the other three are really, really pushed towards men. And so it's an implicit way of leaving women out. And that doesn't even include in the GI Bill, the way the GI Bill was written, it excluded a lot of the um, parts of the armed services that women were involved in. So in that case, another way of hiding that the GI Bill, as some set, as some women veterans said in, in, in oral histories, they just assumed it was for the men. And you can see how that builds on itself over time. And I think one of the most important things to keep in mind about why so many women, particularly women of color, have a hard time paying off the debt. Women take longer. It's because Title IX does nothing, does nothing to ensure that women are going to be paid equally on the job for the same work. And it doesn't take into account in terms of student loan programs, when you pause your payments, the interest still accrues. Well, women are frequently leaving the labor force to provide care, either for children or for elderly relatives. And that is why it compounds more and they have a harder time paying it off. And it's all these ways that it's structural challenges. Charlie, you've written about what you call the virtuous cycle around student debt cancellation. Can you explain what you mean by that and how activism like the Debt Collective and others that you've mentioned have 
publicly influence where we are in the debt cancellation and everything going on around debt? Yeah, well, as we say, uh, predictions are hard, especially about the future. So I've done something very dangerous in making a prediction based on what I see as correct social theory and my reading of our present that I, I think we're going to have a virtuous cycle of student debt cancellation and expansion of debt-free higher education. Now, that is, a, that is contingent upon the survival of representative democracy in the U.S. in its current limited form, which the, the Supreme Court intervention on debt cancellation is an important example of that. If the Supreme Court no longer allows the president or Congress to, uh, to make policy, including debt cancellation, which is clearly within its authority under existing law in the Constitution, then it's hard for popular forces and social forces to, to push through those kinds of policies. But the, the fundamental idea is this. Uh, we've, we've seen a bunch of debt cancellation happen, and we've changed the narrative that student debt is not an appropriate or fair way to finance higher education. And as we cancel debt, it changes expectations for what is possible. So you can't say, oh, it's crazy. You can't just dismiss debt cancellation by saying it's crazy. Now that the president of the United States has done so for, has announced an executive order to do so for 40 million borrowers and hundreds of billions of dollars in student debt. Even if his broad executive action is delayed, we've already seen over $50 billion in cancellation uh, under more targeted programs involving for-profit college students and public servants, including many university employees, and hundreds of billions of dollars in debt cancellation effectively through the pause in student loan repayments. We've essentially ended interest accrual for the last three years by pausing interest for the COVID pandemic. And that pause has now been extended to June, showing how, just how hard it is politically to restart interest and restart the old status quo. Now, as we cancel debt for past borrowers, that really raises a question for future borrowers. Is it really fair for us to ask them to borrow if we've just canceled debts for student? And are we going to then have to turn around and cancel debt for future students also. And so I think that is reinforcing the popular narrative that is driving initiatives like we have in California and in many other places to offer debt-free pathways and including pathways that, as Ellie's importantly pointed out, provide enough financial support for people to, to eat, have, a, have a, a roof over their heads and be students and not have to work a burdensome number of hours at the same time as they're going to school. The details of that, I expect, will be negotiated and hashed out continuously. I don't, I'm sure that uh, because people will claim resource scarcity, that financial aid, even if in these debt-free proposals, my guess is that the financial aid will not be gener generous enough in the initial implementation of debt-free programs. But we've created a standard and an expectation that I think will provide favorable conditions for people to continue pushing for truly debt-free financial aid. And just briefly, for faculty or chapters at the institutional level, 
going forward, are there recommendations about how they can get involved that you see as particularly effective in terms of working with certain groups or how to kind of expand this virtuous cycle that you've described? Yeah, I mean, I in the recent AAUP special issue, there's better things than what I wrote about how to get involved in ins for debt-free college and for free college. And I, I think it's great for folks to do that on your campus, pushing your campus to use every resource available to it and to seek more, more state resources to offer debt-free financial aid packages is really important. But the other thing that you can do is you can improve your school's programs to enroll, uh, current students when they leave school and employees in student debt relief programs, including public service loan forgiveness, which can be used to cancel your entire debt and income-driven repayments, particularly if those payment plans are improved as the Biden administration has proposed. And those that's not the endpoint that I think we should get to, but I think doing that work, which provides immediate relief and mutual support to students builds the connections and the organization for pushing through political initiatives to make college free or debt free when policy windows open to do that. And that I think has been the brilliance of the the debt collective, the brilliance of student debt crisis and other civic organizations is that they've done both these things of mutual aid for borrowers right now to get immediate relief and building a movement to eliminate student debt. One of the things that I appreciate about what Charlie said and his answer was the emphasis on democracy and having a representative democracy, because really the question of the student loan industry is it's really a failure of politics. It's a failure of actually, we have had pushes since the first GI Bill to have affordable, accessible higher education in this country that went nowhere. And it really does reflect the politics of this country. That being said, The other thing I really try and give so much applause to the students who in the original work study program completely changed many people's attitudes about who could be, who could go to higher education, who could finish a college degree, who could, um, who could really excel in college because all they needed was the financial support. They needed the genuine opportunity and the same who could really excel in college because all they needed was the financial support. They needed the genuine opportunity and the same with the GI bill. And what I see right now in terms of the movement to push not only for free college, but for debt cancellation, it is a story of the incredible power of ordinary people when they come together in social movements. Hence, Charlie's very helpful descriptions about how amazing this is. And if this momentum can keep going and you can build this, there is a real chance for something new and something different. And we have real credit to sort of showing just the power and potential of ordinary people to make clear not only what they need, but how what's the best way to do it. Thank you to both Ellie and Charlie for joining me on the podcast today. There was a lot to cover, so please check out their academe articles for more. They're linked in the show notes, along with links to other material we discussed on the podcast today. We'll have more episodes for you in 2023. Happy holidays to everyone, and thank you very much for listening to the first year of AAUP Presents. It's been a very fun and interesting experience making these shows for you, and I appreciate the time and effort of everyone who's appeared on the show so far. I'm Mariah Quinn. Happy New Year.